Hi, this is Jasmine. And this is Tori. And this is Book Biopsy, the podcast that biopsies a book each month and discusses it in the context of the medical student experience. Each month, we will read a new book, and through the book, we will discuss our journey through medical school, our time on rotations, failures and triumphs, and how we've dealt with roadblocks to give you an accurate representation of what our lives have looked like over these past three years. This month, we read The Blue Man and Other Stories of the Skin, a book by Dr. Robert Norman published in 2014. Dr. Norman walks us through some of his most memorable and mysterious cases as a dermatologist and writes about the significance of the body's largest organ by tracing the history of dermatological conditions and examining the cultural, social, and psychological impact of skin disease. All right, Jasmine, let's do a biopsy. actually did a rotation in dermatology so maybe you could talk to me a little bit about what that was like the things you saw what was your day like yeah sure um dermatology is a really varied specialty and you get to experience clinical medicine procedures and pathology all in one dermatologists are experts on the skin all the mucosa external genitalia mouth hair nails i feel like there hasn't been a single rotation that i've been on where we haven't bumped into something dermatological i think one of the most surprising ones was when i was on my OBGYN rotation and my preceptor handed me a book that was really thick and it was just about gynecological skin conditions and i think like we only learn about like lichen sclerosis and lichen planus in school, but <laughs> that book was filled to the brim with different skin conditions you can get. And when I was on my internal medicine rotation, there was like times where the intern would point out like, oh, look, this person has an extra nipple here or something. <laughs> like we were constantly seeing derm problems in different specialties. So since we're talking about this, how skin tells stories, let's talk about one of his stories in the book. Yeah. Let's do the one that the book is named after, The Blue Man. So basically, he gets called into a nursing home because this guy has blue skin and there's not, literally nothing else wrong with him. He's eating, drinking, having fun with his friends, but he's just blue. And the family's really disturbed and they're threatening the nursing home. Like, if you can't figure out why my grandpa's blue, we're going to sue you. So he gets called and he gets brought in. He pretty much knows immediately. Well, does he know immediately what's going on? I think he, he went through a few different differentials. But he finally settled on it was the medication that he was taking that was turning him mm-hmm. blue. Do you remember what that medication was called? Yeah, it was minocycline, which is a common one, actually, to cause blue skin. So have you seen this happen before? Um, I have seen in clinic a person whose skin was turning blue, but not because of minocycline, possibly because of another drug. Um, it seems like when a person's skin turns blue, it's usually one of two things. Um, a drug reaction or some kind of metal or like argyria, a little bit of silver, some kind of metal exposure. Um, yeah, I did see in the clinic a person whose skin was turning blue 
And it was pretty striking looking at them. Um, I've heard that you, you can, sometimes with those drug reactions, their skin can turn so bright blue, it's like a Smurf blue. And you can imagine that's really distressing to the patient. And unfortunately, um, it takes a while to recover from this because you, if it's a drug reaction, you stop the drug, but it can take a while for it to work out of your system. Um, so pretty um, sad for the patient when they learn it could be a while. And as you can imagine, some like most skin conditions, um, a socially important one and can cause shame and um, a lot of um, embarrassment and, you know, looks and stares in public and can be really hard for an individual. I honestly can't even imagine going through the world with bright Smurf blue skin. That would be taxing. Yeah, and that's something that not doesn't necessarily hurt, right? It's not a painful condition, but is a psychological, socio psychological um, pain in itself. And then there are those skin conditions that really hurt. Um, thinking of the blistering conditions, I saw a patient who had pemphigus vulgaris and it was really sad to see how painful this condition was blistering in the mouth and and genitalia and just sloughing off skin um chronically for weeks and it's very painful thinking about how much you know we kind of take our skin for granted as just being there and being intact and it'll heal on its own and it's really cool because it usually does but when it doesn't it can be so devastating and something that we definitely take for granted or at least I do because I'm always cutting and scraping and banging into things he talks a little bit about how even if the skin condition doesn't hurt it can impact your life even more than a life-threatening disease could high cholesterol which can actually kill you but when people look at you they don't see oh oh they have high cholesterol (laughs) right and i think maybe people are quick to judge thinking that cosmetic things aren't important and can cause a lot of psychological burden on a person having a skin condition. I think unless you've experienced certain skin conditions, it's hard to really understand what that person is going through. Yeah, I remember one time I was at the store and the cashier had a skin condition and just like this little kid in front of me in line was just like, why do you look like that? And it was just like, oh, so heartbreaking to see. But she handled it really well. She was like, oh, this is just how I was made. This is what I look mm-hmm. like. Dang, kids. Yeah. Oh, that's got to be hard. Yeah. I mean, adults are just as bad, right? They stare and they'll ask questions inappropriately. And that's can be really yeah. hard. It's, it's almost worse when adults Yeah. And it's, that's a skin, when you have a skin condition, it's something you can't hide. You know, you don't have to wear a name tag that says, I have diabetes, because no one looks at you and says, you have diabetes. But I feel like diabetes is always the one we compare to. I don't know why. But um, (laughs) you have psoriasis. People stare. People want to know. And they feel like it's their business to know sometimes, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I've had um, 
friends with conditions like psoriasis and I know it's just it's a chronic condition they're battling their whole life and they really have to from a young age learn a certain amount of self-worth and self-confidence that I didn't have till later in life I think because they're wearing their disease on their skin I love the way that you talk about this and like compassion that comes through. I feel like sometimes as medical people, we can kind of, we'll read about a disease and when we finally see it in real life, we're like, wow, like that's so cool. But it's just, it's not cool. It is not cool at all for that person. Mm -hmm. I actually got called out a couple times by the preceptor that I have right now, who is actually a surgeon. I was talking about a case I had seen, which was uh, chylothorax, when Mm -hmm. the thoracic duct gets nicked during surgery and your thorax cavity fills up with chyme, which is like a fatty fluid. Mm -hmm. It's really rare, but it's hard for you to breathe and it has to be drained and you have to go back in for surgery and get it fixed. I guess the way that I was describing it, I was kind of really excited about it. Like, oh, I can't believe I had gotten to see this. Like, this is so rare and I got to see something like this. And he was just like, no, that's horrible that you got to see that. Mm. (laughs) But I also think it's part of our profession almost a little bit to be fascinated by disease. That's one of the things that draws us. It's exciting to see something for the first time that you read about in a textbook in real life. It's really exciting. And that's how I felt exactly when I met the patient with pemphigus vulgaris. It was such an opportunity to see that disease in real life, but there was so much pain behind that diagnosis. It was a really complex case, actually, because the patient didn't have insurance. Oh, gosh, no. Um, Otherwise was healthy, so didn't purchase insurance in the past, but all of a sudden had this out-of-the-blue autoimmune condition, as autoimmune conditions are. They just happen sometimes, and then you're like, I never had rheumatoid arthritis, and now I have it, you know? Um, Or in this case, just started losing skin um, and blistering up, and now all of a sudden you need health insurance. Yeah, and the physician had to make a decision on how to treat the patient, if if to take on the patient, because the patient didn't have a way to pay for the appointment and the treatment and the biopsy and the pathology and the immunofluorescence and all of the things that were required to take care of this condition. And luckily, that person, that physician, felt um, like they could and they did take on this patient and cover costs, um, find out a way to work with the patient and get them insurance and... um, was really meaningful to see how deeply um, the physician impacted the quality of that person's life. That's such a powerful story that that physician took on that patient and decided to help them with this really painful disease, even though they couldn't afford it. And I think that's what our role is as physicians. And he talks about it in the book so much. He says it over and over again, that patients have these intense diseases that affect how they look, how they feel. And it's our role to make their lives just a little bit better by taking care of that blemish over their eye. So nah, their lives are still hard, but at least they don't have that little thing above their eye that was just causing them so much self-consciousness mm-hmm. and agony. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, even something as seemingly benign as acne, I think, is really important to treat. And working with a patient on forming a positive self-image and understanding self-care, um, hygiene, things like that, preventing things like acne scars. Yeah. Oh gosh, acne was the worst. Right. And and only I feel like only the people who really have had a go with acne can relate to how devastating it can be. Um, like everyone gets a zit here and there, but some people really struggle with acne and it can take such a toll on their psychological well-being. Yeah, definitely. So it's a cool thing to be able to work, I think, in dermatology with young adults too and guide them through um, their adolescence and this particular thing that can cause them so much stress during adolescence um, and help that patient. Because um, a lot of times people... Th- I think there's like an ethical thing that people have with the skin where they look at someone who has acne and they kind of judge them. They think they're not taking care of their skin or they're not washing their skin or they're eating too much cheese or whatever. They have this kind of judgmental attitude and we know that that's not correct. Like acne is caused by a variety of things and you can't blame the person for it. It's genetics, it's oil production, it's puberty, it's oil glands growing in size it's bacteria there's it's wearing these darn masks all the time <laughs> oh my gosh mask me mask me jasmine mask me oh i didn't know it was called that that's oh, awesome <laughs> <laughs> the nice part about mask me is usually the mask covers it's it the cause and the treatment not really the treatment Exactly. (laughs) One of the rare occasions. It's kind kind of making us dependent on masks. Like, the mask has caused my acne. (laughs) Now I must wear the mask to cover up my acne. Man, the mask industry. I I feel like this might be a... This might be part of their um, money-making scheme. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. No no conspiracy theories on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we don't support anti-maskers. <laughs> Book biopsy does not endorse. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> pro-mask, anti-acne. I am 100% pro-mask. One of the things that I kind of think that we should wear masks all the time for the rest of our lives is when I'm in a room with a patient and they say something totally weird... I can react and they can't even tell. <laughs> I feel like I've ha- I had to get really good at the Tyra Banks smize and like expressing myself through my eyes and my eyebrows and my forehead. Yes. <laughs> it's been kind of fun. I wonder if I overreact now kind of like a mime or a clown. Like if I were to take my mask off, my expression is just so huge because I'm trying to convey. <laughs> Once we're all out of masks, are we just all going to be like... Hey, how are ya? Really? My name is Greg. <laughs> really active eyebrow action and maybe some premature wrinkles. Oh no! Um. Anyway, I forget what we sorry were, about I forgot what we were talking pressure. about. Mask me, yes, mask and mask me. And you were gonna like say something about cancer. Oh man, cancer. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about sun exposure and cancer because that's a big part of dermatology, obviously. Um, we know that tanning increases the risk of skin cancer by 75%. 
And a lot of people still do tanning, surprisingly. I didn't realize. I think the patients that we see now in their um, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s are patients who had a lot of sun exposure as kids because the knowledge of what sun exposure does to the skin and UVB, UVA rays and their um, consequences in causing skin cancer um, was not readily apparent at that time. Um, I heard a lot of stories about people who would use baby oil as not like to put on their skin instead of sunscreen because that wasn't really a thing, sunscreen. And they would tan with baby oil, which is truly interesting. (laughs) So were they just like cooking their skin? Yeah. Well, the suntan look... It's interesting over the, if you think about the history of skin color and how, you know, in early days having lighter skin was desirable because it showed that you weren't in the fields working and you were wealthy enough to sit at home, I guess. <laughs> then you get to that bronze look, everybody wanting to look really tan and f- look like they feel healthier. And everybody, I mean, white people. <laughs> The idea of a tan <laughs> making you look healthy and making you look fit, make you slim. Um, God, I wish having a tan made you look slim. <sighs> tanning. Did you ever tan when you were younger, Jasmine? No. And I think that's because both of my parents were physicians. And when they told me that it increases skin cancer by 75%, I was just like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> And I was honestly shocked because I'd be invited to go with my friends all the time. And I would tell them, like, dude, like, this 75% is a lot. And they just would not care. I love you giving stats to and your I little friends. never understood that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they know exactly who they are, too. That's great. Um, my dad. And I love them. <laughs> My dad was definitely a freak about putting on, slathering on the sunscreen on me. And I was like, oh, this is so embarrassing having this white covering on me. And I wanted, like, all my friends were laying on their driveways tanning and um, wanting to look. I think, (laughs) I wonder the role that Jersey Shore played in the aesthetic of tanning. Um, The GTL, (laughs) as it's known. And (laughs) if... After Jersey Shore, we all kind of were like, hmm, maybe this isn't sexy anymore. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But at some point, I feel like we we transitioned to it not being as cute. (laughs) Yeah, because it was not cute on that. Not cute. And then, of course, we have a president who's orange, so it's also a turnoff. So this is all good. This is all good for for our skin and protecting it. Um, So... The appeal of tanning, besides it being aesthetically pleasing to some, is that tanning actually causes a release of endorphins, and it feels good. Paradoxically, sun exposure can be healthy in some circumstances, um, specifically talking about treatments for psoriasis. One of the treatments is to go outside and get some sun or go to a designated treatment center to get exposure to UV rays. And as we know, sun causes the transformation of vitamin D in our skin and is a source of that essential vitamin. But as with most things, it's all in moderation and protecting your skin is 
I think one of the biggest things I learned from being in a, well, personal, for in a personal note, I was very convinced by my time in dermatology to wear sunscreen, especially on my face, um, anytime I'm going outside. And sometimes now I even think about the sun exposure inside the rooms and through the windows and... Oh my gosh, it can get us inside. <laughs> if you're a vampire like me and you live in Oregon, then yes. Okay, just looking at the cumulative effects of the sun on your skin over years and years and years, getting to work with patients who are in their 80s, 90s, and see the effects of cumulative sun exposure, very much convinced me to wear skin on a daily... Skin? <laughs> yeah, I put my skin on. Put the lotion in the basket. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wear sunscreen... <laughs> On a daily basis, especially when going outside, to protect the skin from cumulative exposure to sun. Yeah, I am going to wear sunscreen every day. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, like, all of this kind of lies under the umbrella of preventative medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we as a society really don't take seriously I don't think for example like it's so easy to not to put on sunscreen and not use suntan beds because we know it causes cancer but we do it anyway mm -hmm. there's also things like poor eating choices I know when I'm stressed or something I would <laughs> go get myself a crispy chicken sandwich from McDonald's and I knew <laughs> it was horrible for me to eat it but I would do it anyway so I think there's like an interesting psychology behind it. Why aren't we taking care of ourselves? And why are we doing things that we specifically know are terrible for us? And I also think that this would be an interesting time to talk about primary care physicians who oftentimes get stuck with the preventative medicine. They're the ones who are tasked with doing preventative medicine. But when you think about how much other stuff they have to do, it's ridiculous that they get tasked with this because they're the ones who have to read your list of 20 problems, pick two to fix during this 15 minute meeting they have with you. They have to call the specialists to organize things for you. They have to call social services because if they're mentally disabled, they have to organize rides to get to the doctors. And then they have to deal with insurance. And they're just so, everything is piled upon them. Yeah. When you have a specialist, a cardiologist, they know when they walk in the room that, okay, this is probably going to be the heart. 95% chance <laughs> is the heart. <laughs> um... Let's uh, take a listen <laughs> and they deal with one organ system and they kind of have a formula with how they treat each disease. And then if they have any other problem, like, oh, my back hurts or um, I also have uh, diarrhea, <laughs> they send them right back to the primary mm -hmm. care doctor. They kind of have a lot on their plate. So putting preventative medicine on them as well. I can understand how it would slip through the cracks. Mm -hmm. As well as the people who would benefit from preventative medicine are like young people, mm -hmm. me and you, who don't really ever go see the doctor. Speak for yourself, Jasmine. I love going to the doctor. 
Yeah, no, I totally understand what you're saying, um, but it is, it's got to be the role of the PCP to take on those challenges of educating on front of a medicine or their nurse or that office has to because by the time you get to a cardiologist you already have the problem and the whole role of preventing preventative medicine is to prevent the problem so um sure within specialties there is preventative medicine um but by the time someone's already seeing a specialist usually they've gone beyond that point and are now looking at um tertiary and secondary sources of um, treatment prevention. But um, in dermatology, they are educating regularly their patients about skin practices, particularly with reducing sun exposure, wearing sunscreen, wearing a hat, and also educating on chronic conditions. And they see patients yearly, sometimes for skin checks, they'll see the same patient each year for a skin check to prevent the formation of cancer. They can catch an actinic keratosis and freeze that off and prevent it from developing into a squamous cell cancer. Oh, when you were so you were talking about how we as patients do things that we know are bad for ourselves, even though we've had the education, sometimes we still do things like having a poor eating choice. At least I do. Oh, like, I, we're human, Jasmine. We all, we all <laughs> we're just getting past the holidays. I mean, but what I wanted to mention is that people care about their skin a lot, and it makes dermatology a field where patients are, I think, a little bit more compliant. They can see the medicine working or not working. They can um, pretty quickly usually see results or not, and they care. They People see the skin, they see the skin. It's constantly a visual reminder to do what they need to do to take care of their skin. Um, so in that way, I think people are pretty compliant. Maybe not with sunscreen as much because that is a daily taking that requires diligence. Um, but at least with treatment, I think that's one of the cool things about working in dermatology is your patient's really want to stick to their treatments that's really cool that is a good point because yeah you can't physically see if your your lipid profile is decreasing and a lot of people like losing weight takes forever and ever so it gets frustrating mm-hmm. but skin you can see yeah it has such a rapid turnover there's a visual it, motivator and it's not like losing weight where you have to do something that kind of sucks like I have to go for like a 30 minute run every day. Mm -hmm. Also eating this chocolate mousse is going to be delicious and I know I'm going to love it. So I'll do that, (laughs) which is totally counterproductive. So Jasmine, um, a particular interest of mine is the psychological and sociological impacts of skin conditions. Um, And really enjoyed how Dr. Norman made this a pivotal point of his book. He starts off in the introduction saying, each day I try to heal the pain, both the psychological and physical, that illness of the skin causes people. And describes how a lot of conditions of the skin are protracted um, and can endure for decades, causing serious psychosocial repercussions. A famous dermatologist, Albert Klingman, who um, is mentioned in the book, stated, dermatologists also have to know psychology. I see people at their most vulnerable, devastated as many are by their appearance. I think we've started to talk about this a little bit in the podcast earlier, and 
And if we think about it, there are a lot of skin conditions that are impacted by psychology, by stress, some of those including but not limited to like in simplex chronicus, neurotic excoriations, perigo nodularis, a lot of things where you're you're scratching, um, there's some anxiety, some stress, some compensation, um, some maybe some OCD type things where you have an obsession compulsion type of behavior and you scratch or itch or pull, trichotillomania, pulling at your hair. Um, hand dermatitis from excessive hand washing. And these are all mentioned in the book. And a primary psychodermatological condition known as delusions of peristosis, in which a person has tactile hallucinations, feeling like bugs are crawling on their skin. Um, There's actually a very simple treatment for delusions of peristosis, whereas in psychology, psychiatry, I've learned that most simple delusions or delusions that stand alone are not part of schizophrenia or another diagnosis are really hard to treat. Um, but delusions of parasitosis, parasitosis can be treated pretty simply with a typical antipsychotic drug called pimazide, which is a dopamine antagonist. So that's really interesting. And that really in itself shows the connection between psychiatry and dermatology. So I actually think that's super curious because when I was shadowing doctors, there was one, we had one patient who believed that there were insects inside of them and they would shower in bleach every day Mm -hmm. and shave off all their hair in order to get all of the eggs off of them and stuff. Mm -hmm. And we sent them to dermatology as a consult instead of psychiatry, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if we had sent them for a psych consult, would the patient not have gone? Because this was in an outpatient setting. Yeah. So maybe the dermatologist, they know what to do when they see people like this. So now knowing what I know now, it's not as weird to send them to dermatology as I thought it was back then. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting subject, which is can dermatologists treat non-dermatological conditions and can psychiatrists treat dermatological conditions in a way? It's kind of complex. And if you think about it, if I was a patient and I was concerned that there are bugs crawling on my skin, I might be a little bit more inclined to go to a dermatologist who I feel like could treat my skin than a psychiatrist when I think the problem is in my skin, not my mind. Yes, exactly. And other conditions that are not primarily psychiatric, like psoriasis and eczema, are inherently exacerbated by things like stress. Stress um, is one of the main triggers for those types of conditions. And working with your patient to understand triggers, understand how to control stress and provide a better environment for the skin um, is part of the work of a dermatologist. Yeah. Um, I thought one of the stories that he told that was pretty interesting was this lady, no one could figure out what was wrong with her. She had all these different symptoms that didn't seem to be connected. And he determined that it was stress that was causing her disease. But it was an interesting and difficult diagnosis for him to make because he had to rule out everything else because if it wasn't stress that was causing the disease and he treated her anxiety, Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. instead of treating the disease, he could have, she could have died. So it was the way he talked about the fine tightrope that he was on and the testing that he had to do before he came to the diagnosis. It was interesting because he's also, he says people with anxiety can also have disease too. Mm -hmm. So just because they're anxious doesn't mean that stress is their is the cause of their disease. Sometimes it is, but not all the time. And it's our job as physicians to kind of tease out and be able to help people mm-hmm. who have anxiety. I, I remember that. And I also remember a patient uh, from the book named Mary, who was someone who frequent, frequently came to the clinic and um, had a long list of skin problems with comorbid depression and a chronically just taxed immune system. And a lot of the times when the patient was seen, it was taxed, it was chalked up to be um, basically comorbid with her depression. But at some point, doctor, Dr. Norman, he, I mean, he, he remains curious throughout, it seems, and listens to Mary. And even though she has this depression, um, he's always open-mindedly examining her and listening to her. And at one point she has petechiae and he gets curious about it and works it out, finds that her platelets are 20,000 and discovers that he, she has ITP, which is a serious condition. So by remaining curious and listening to the patient, not just, um, using the framework of um, looking at their skin and looking at their history to make a diagnosis allowed him to make this interesting diagnosis. Um, And I think that that is really important for times when we are so heavily dependent on the physical exam. The physical exam is so important, but we have to remember that, or I have to remember to remain curious and really listen to the patient um, and and work beyond that PE. I know one time I was complaining to my dad, who's a internal medicine physician, because I felt like when I'd go in and interview the patient, they would just come and tell me everything about their lives, thinking it was related to why they were there when I didn't think it was. Someone came in for diabetes, but they also had this foot fungus and their mom just died and their diabetes was out of control Mm. and I was just kind of ranting about it and he was like well you gotta get curious instead of getting irritated because those are all related (laughs) (laughs) the diabetes is out of control because her mom just died and she's stress eating and she has toenail fungus because she has an immune uh, her immune system is down from her diabetes which allows foot fungus to get Mm -hmm. in there easier. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this case suddenly became interesting again. Yeah, yeah, it fits together in a story. Another piece of this I thought was so interesting and I had never thought about is that there are different kinds of pickers, quote unquote. Um, You know, people pick their skin, they bite their nails, they, they, I don't know, my partner is definitely a picker I am not (laughs) and I so I was really curious about this like why do you have to bite your fingernails and pick your acne um but just listen to this list of different kinds of pickers angry pickers anxious depressed pickers body dysmorphic pickers borderline pickers delusional pickers guilt pickers habit pickers 
narcissistic pickers, obsessive compulsive pickers, and organic pickers. Those are the whole foods types. What is an organic <laughs> picker? <laughs> like, I'm going to go out and get those organic blueberries. I was, I was born this way. Maybe it's Maybelline. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. What is it? Maybe she was born that way. does not endorse Maybelline. (laughs) Maybe she was born that way. Maybe it's Maybelline. (laughs) I think maybe organic in a synonym way of saying primary pickers. But even though, like, who's born just, like, out of the womb picking? I don't really know what to say about this list other than interesting. It is interesting. I never would have thought that there were classifications for this, but it makes sense. Let's bring this to talk about more the sociological aspects of skin disease, um, things like stigma and yeah. So um, one thing I wanted to mention is that it seems like there's, I think we talked about this a little bit already, but there's sort of an ethos ethics of the skin that people without skin conditions look pure they look like they've got it together they're taking care of themselves they're good people um and that's just a like a bias that our society sometimes has um and looking at the specific example given in the book which was with vitiligo um the in india the belief that um, people with vitiligo, also known as white leprosy, sinned in a previous life, that their skin markings were stigmata of their sins. And um, how in our society, that while that seems pretty foreign, um, in this society, we still judge people based on their skin in many ways. Um, and one thing this book really did not talk about is um, skin color and the sociological implications of skin color in the society. What did you think about that, Jasmine? I thought that it was kind of a missed opportunity for him because mm-hmm. he did talk about like albinos being hunted in Tanzania for their limbs and you, you'll you run into like albinos with missing legs and arms because they'll be chopped off and used as trophies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't talk about our own country and race, which I thought was interesting because this is a book about skin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're not going to talk about skin color. Yeah. But maybe he thought it would distract from his his story. I don't know. I think it would have been a good opportunity, though. It would have. It's a big topic, but I think it would have been, you're right, an opportunity to talk about something. And it's not like it doesn't affect our practice as physicians. And specifically in dermatology, when you're looking at the skin so closely and you develop the pattern recognition, depending on the population you learned about the skin with or the patterns you've learned, did you learn about skin conditions through mostly white skin? Um, Because things look different on different skin tones. I think at least being aware and having um, a curiosity to learn about how skin conditions affect different skin and show up for different skin. And then beyond that, 
know the societal role that skin color plays and how you might interact with that. I like how you talked about the stigma of vitiligo in India. And it's not just skin diseases. We had, for example, AIDS. AIDS was associated with being gay. Yeah, so there's like certain stigmas associated with certain diseases. And we never really think about that or learn about that in medical school. But when, but there are these heavy implications, social implications when you diagnose something. I know we talked mm-hmm. about mental health in the past, diagno- giving someone a mental health diagnosis. Well, Tori, I think it's about time to wrap this up and talk about our takeaways from the book. Yeah, let's do it. So the thing that really stuck out to me and I absolutely loved was when we were talking about the patients having these intense, disfiguring, horrible diseases. And it's our job as physicians to help make their lives a little bit easier. I think I can apply that to other parts of my life, too. Like when I am listening to my partner tell me about his day, showing a little bit more interest than I normally do because I'm <laughs> always so stressed out from like the medical school craziness. Relatable. <laughs> <laughs> Just taking time to give a little bit back, a little bit more than I usually do back. So my takeaway is to take from this book how specialties are interrelated. So we talked a lot about from the book um, how psychiatry and dermatology are connected. And so I want to challenge myself not to silo specialties and find the intersections between various fields of medicine. So let's see. I mean, my current and next rotation is pediatrics and OB-GYN. So I can see some connections there, and I'm going to try and think about that continuum. Try to really take the knowledge of what I learned in previous rotation and apply that knowledge to the next specialty. But basically, just always be open to understanding the interconnections between specialties and not try and be narrow-minded in what my idea of, say, cardiology is thinking about opportunities there for connection. To wrap things up, I just want to say our next book is going to be House of God by Samuel Shem. So feel free to read along with us or just take it all in during the episode. Our Instagram is bkbxpod. And if you have any questions or suggestions, please email us at bkbxpod at gmail.com. And please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts if you get the chance.